And again, Happy New Year, and welcome back to another episode of The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at serious matters confronting the country, be they internal or external, existential threats, threats to our existence, threats to our way of life, threats to traditional American ways of thinking and acting, and we talk about what's being done about those threats. Max Eden joins me today. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's writing a book examining the Parkland School shooting. That's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, you remember, from last February. He's writing it from a policy perspective, and you talk about an existential threat represented by policy. Well, you'll hear more about it. Also, we'll take a look at foreign policy with Michael Anton. He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. Present, he's a writer, and he's a lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Well, Claude, uh, several things I want to talk about. Uh, Not the most important thing in the world, but maybe the most shocking thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Clemson. I mean, took care of business. I mean, my gosh. Wasn't even close. Beating Alabama is one thing. Right. Smoking them. Yeah. Doesn't happen much. Worst defeat for Alabama in in memory. Right. I mean, they just beat him. And this kid's a freshman. I was dead wrong about him. I mean, I said on the podcast, I wasn't sure whether he'd be up to the job. Against against Alabama. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> he totally was. Showed Tua had to be a quarterback. Yeah, no, I mean, and he's coming back. The running back's coming back. The wide receiver that had all those amazing catches. Uh, I forget his name. His last name, Ross. Uh, he's coming back. I mean, we very well could see these two teams again next year in the national championship game. It diminishes the luster of the sacred uh, SEC. Right. You know, so mm-hmm. makes the ACC look better. They beat Alabama much worse than they beat most of their ACC guys. Sure. No, right. Amazing. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say. Anyway, holy smokes, I, I just don't know what to say. Paradigm shift. I heard one sports guy, I looked up, said paradigm shift. Boy, that's from my world. Mm-hmm. But he said new, new shift. It's not, you know, it's not Alabama. But Alabama doesn't rule in one game. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's the case. But, I mean, we'll, well when Clemson win, beats Alabama two out of three years for the national championship, maybe there is. You They're 2-2 two and two now in college football playoffs. Right. Because they played the semifinal game last once, year. Right. And Alabama beat them. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the finals, Clemson's up 2-1. to one. Right. And decisively. Yeah. In a way the other games weren't. Right. Right. The other thing somebody pointed out is if you take the most storied programs – in college football over time, they would be Notre Dame and mm-hmm. Alabama. Okay. And they both got smoked by Clemson. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Man. What did you think about this move uh, to put Jalen Hurts in the game when it was out of reach? I didn't like that at all. Why well, put him through that? When did they put him in? I went to bed. Oh, oh. <laughs> Believe it or not, I went to bed. No, I mean, when they hit 42 or something. Yeah. I like, said, I got to do a podcast. In the fourth quarter. They put him in. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, what are you doing that for? No, that's too late. Yeah. Well, you know, twice they substituted quarterbacks and twice they won. Right. So, a little bit of superstition. Way too late for that. Way too late for that. Okay, we'll move on. Um, I want to just comment on something that's going on. I, I want to ask you, and I, I didn't rehearse this with you, have you okay. heard of the author Alex Berenson of the New York Times? No, sir. Okay. wonder if any of the audience has. He's getting a ton of publicity. Last week, this week, all over the media, the written media, okay. print media. You'll see him all over television. He is a standard, smart writer for the New York Times. He has just come out with a book called Tell Your Children. Okay. It's about the dangers of marijuana. Oh. New York Times right. writer. I'm sure a conventional liberal and has written a blistering, tough book about marijuana. Now, where, you've, where have you heard tough attacks on marijuana before? Uh, right here on this podcast. Right here from me. <laughs> right. So I welcome him as an ally. 
Mm -hmm. surprising, you know, odd quarter to come from, New York Times. Right. And a lot of his colleagues are kind of totally flummoxed by his his position. But the book is published, I think, January 8th or 9th, so today, tomorrow. I haven't read it yet, but I've read a lot of reviews, but more on this later on. Right. uh, A lot of people think, wow, you know, this is like Clemson beating Alabama. This is a sea change. It's a paradigm shift. We'll see. I don't think one writer for the New York Times can change this. But, you know, with this legalization freight train going down the track. Right. I want to comment uh, briefly on our, our guests today. Michael Anton. Now, we just, we're very candid with this audience. We were going to talk about the world, Iran and Syria, yeah. China. We ended up just talking about the border and ultimately the cultural arguments. Mm-hmm. For having a border. Um, I could barely get a word in edgewise with Michael. He was so fired up. I don't, right. I'm not criticizing That's him at good. all. It's great. Yeah. That's why we have him on. We want to hear them. Right. But he was really fired up and um, some very interesting stuff, uh, particularly his argument that we're big enough. We have enough people. So listen to that. I don't know what you thought, but I've been living with this book for the last two weeks, this Why Meadow Died, this book about Parkland. Oh, yeah, yeah. What did you think of that? Very unique look at the mm-hmm. things leading up to it. And you talk about a situation where everything that could go wrong went wrong because you're trying to fit in or you're afraid of some policy uh, regarding the way you're dealing with kids who, who are certainly – number one at risk uh and putting others at risk i mean i was i was just shocked by some of the stuff that he's that that he uncovered in the the book were there any adults who did the right thing the answer max says this is about nicholas cruz and marjorie stoneman douglas high school in the shooting and he said one special ed teacher Mm -hmm. we're going to do some of our laundry here right on the show i want you to write max okay and see if you can get the name of that special ed teacher see if we can talk to her sure sure she's the person who said this kid is dangerous he's going to kill somebody Mm -hmm. and she was ignored yep see if we can find her and talk to her you got ask max if he can give us some contact information sure thing and ask him if he thinks she would talk on the podcast okay absolutely it's fascinating it's not about guns it's about the abrogation of responsibility it's about washing your hands i Mm -hmm. am oh he may be messed up but it's not my responsibility right why didn't somebody step up here amazing Mm -hmm. your reaction to that whole narrative i mean it's a situation where you know students were coming to faculty and saying hey this guy's bringing bullets to schools to school he's bringing a knife to school he said he's going to kill me and my friends he says he's going to do this and the kids you know uh are coming to the folks that they're supposed to go to and they let them down they let the kids down. Listen, and then they try to turn the debate to guns. Then at the school, how come there was no one at the school who said any of these administrators said, you know, they told us he could do something like this. I didn't hear that. Like I didn't hear them say, you know, students came and told us that this could happen. They thought that he was this that that he would do something like this one day, and we didn't do anything. No, they turned it to guns. Well, as Thomas Moore says, a man for all seasons. I give you the times. This is the times in which we live, and I'm afraid this this ethos of you know not my problem as inhabited the schools and now mm-hmm. governs the schools mm-hmm. is so persistent in this idea of getting rid of the school to prison pipeline that we'll look at kids who should be in prison and just look the other way without regard for the lives of other students mm-hmm. horrible tragic eye-opening story you're listening to the bill bennett show, bill bennett show. Joining us now, Michael Anton. Michael is a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. At present, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Michael, uh, by the time uh, folks listen to this, they will have heard the president uh, speaking about the border in this uh, 
primetime nationally televised address. Is this a foreign policy issue? Well, not primarily, but it touches on areas of foreign policy. I mean, on one level, look, it's about sovereignty, which is fundamentally a foreign policy issue. But I would still say fundamentally, this is a domestic policy issue. This is about who the members, I'm sorry to get uh, philosophical and geeky here, but it's necessary, who the members of the existing social compact want to admit uh, and do they have the power uh, and the legitimate right to take in or not take in people? And essentially, all the president's enemies won't say it outright. They say, well, well, nobody's for open borders, Mr. President. That's a straw man. Well, OK, maybe all these people deny being for open borders. But I can tell you one thing. They're against anything that might effectively secure the border. So if you're for a wall, if you're for a fence, if you're for a barrier, if you're for this or that or the other thing, they're against it. They want the border to be open and then they want to be able to retain the the rhetorical point of being able to say they're not for open borders for the sole reason that they they deny being for open borders. But as a practical matter, they're for open borders. I was going to say uh, in my philosophically geeky way, and I'm a licensed philosopher, you know, I don't know if you know that, <laughs> but I, I carry around a PhD in philosophy in Washington, which is of yeah. some value, but limited. <laughs> but uh, I would say in order to have a foreign policy, you know, one needs to have a, a country and this you have to have a country, you have to have a border, you have right. to have sovereignty and sovereign control over your own borders. Look, it's it's one of the things that people who watch terrorism carefully um, have sort of marveled at, myself included, is, uh, look, with this wide open border and our pretty abysmal ability as a country to keep track of who comes in who you know, and who moves around within our country, it is amazing that we haven't had more terrorist attacks. Um, now, to uh -huh. some extent, and I, I, I rely here on the best counterterrorism analyst in the world, my friend Tom Jocelyn, uh, he, has, he has pointed out that to some extent that comes from the top. That is to say that the commanders of the leading organizations have told their followers, don't do anything without checking with us, and we're holding out until we can mount another really big attack. So the thing that a lot of people feared after 9-11, that there would just be a whole bunch of one-off sort of shopping mall movie theater type attacks – hasn't happened in part because the leadership of these organizations has told their followers not to do it, but they can't control everybody. And it's still sort of amazing that people who just don't want to listen to leaders haven't done it themselves. The fact of the matter is though, the reason that that hasn't happened isn't because, or at least it's not primarily because we're so great at preventing terrorists from getting into the country and keeping track of them once they're here. It's, it's, there's a lot of luck involved. If, if people were determined to do this, definitely wanted to do it, we don't really have the capability to stop them right now because we won't do anything serious about the border but is is there a mistake in if not a mistake um misplaced emphasis in talking about the protection of the border and the sovereignty of the country primarily in terms of stopping terrorists yes, yes. that's the trap that the republicans i think have fallen into at least certain republicans at certain times have said because it, it sort of presumes, or at least it implies, that that's the only reason you should be worried about it. So long as no one's coming in intending to do right, harm, right. intending to inflict casualties, murder, uh, commit terrorist acts, well, then that's okay. Everyone else should be allowed to come in, which is, of course, completely absurd and not true. The United States has every right to control its border for really whatever reason it wants, but we have a lot of good reasons. We have economic reasons. We have reasons of limited resources. Uh, we have reasons of simple population. How big do you want the country to be? Right, right. right now, we're at around 330 million people. That's a lot of people, yes. I think. I wrote this in the Washington Post 
uh, in the middle of last year. Why do we need more people anyway? Yep. You can make a case for earlier waves of immigration that the country actually needed additional people to settle the plains, settle the frontier, you know, man the factories in, a, in an economic boom and so on. Why do we need them now? Well, the best anyone can come up with is to say, look, hey, um, and it, this is really ironic that these people would say it, but they'd say, look, we have very low unemployment. So, you know, when we have low un unemployment, you, you obviously need more workers. Well, these same people will say you need more workers when we, you know, in after the financial crisis, when we had very high unemployment, um, uh, to which I asked the question, OK, finally, we have low unemployment. The people who voted for Trump, most of them have seen wage stagnation for 30 years or some, something like that, uh, or even falling wages. Um, you know, some, some, some communities are actually worse off economically uh, in 2016 or even now than they had been, you know, in 1970 or 1980. Not just in, not relatively, but actually directly. Why not use the, the um, record low unemployment to tighten up the labor market and raise their wages? Oh, no, we can't have that. And I think the reason is, is some of this comes down to the problems in our own party. People in our own party are in the thrall to big business. Big business wants more labor to keep the supply high, to keep the yeah. uh, wage low. Wages low. Yeah. And the left wants more immigration, uh, uh, partly for right. uh, electoral reasons, sure. because they know that uh, immigrants tip regions, counties, states blue, and, and they vote Democrat, and partly for cultural reasons. And th this part, you know, it's a controversial thought, but I think it's true, and others have said it too. The left has come to believe that America is sort of fundamentally evil because of its various sins and that one of, you know, one of the only ways to expiate that evil, to get rid of it, to sort of purge it, is by an endless welcoming of immigrants who, by their very presence, kind of um, – yeah. Purge America of its purge. Sins. Purge is a good word. It's a purgative yeah. is what they're what yeah. they're after. Which I think is insane. Purge. But that's that is that is something certain people on the left absolutely believe. It's it's ironic in that they believe two sort of contradictory things at the same time. One is America is racist and evil, and second is because America is racist and evil, it ought to take in people from all races from around the world. Well, why would why would a racist evil country? Uh, why would it be better for people of other races to come and live in a racist, evil country? Yeah, why would that uh, they? Don't, they don't really have an answer to that, except that to the extent that America becomes more and more uh, diverse, it becomes somehow less and less racist. Okay. So those people make the country better by coming here. I just want to come back to that question I asked. It does seem to me a mistake to put all the eggs in the basket of terrorism yes. or criminality. You've got a right yes. to preserve your borders. If it's all women and children, it's still the same. I think we should make an economic argument. I think we should make a political argument. I think we should make a cultural argument. Look, okay. these are the, all of those have and, and the, the cultural argument is the hardest one to make. I can remember not long ago, well, maybe somewhat long ago, several years ago, pre-Trump, watching a cable TV roundtable and a conservative pundit saying something like, "Look, the thing that the Republicans or the conservatives, anti-immigration types or immigration skeptics can't admit, so they use all these other." arguments is that their real objection is cultural and they can't say that. By, and he meant that approvingly in the sense that the, his point was the cultural argument is fundamentally evil and illegitimate, so the Republicans can't say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I don't think it's evil and illegitimate, and I'll say it. The, the country is better off the more united it is. Yeah. Okay? We've seen this problem in our country, and we're seeing it especially in Europe, where countries become disunited when they end up having large populations of 
foreign peoples who don't necessarily share their language, their religion, their customs, their traditions, their principles, and inevitably conflict arises. But, Why but would I you think, want that for your country? Why would you choose that for your country? It well, seems stupid to me. Well, the other one of the other things is, and I haven't, you know, I made this argument much lately, but I made it maybe ten years ago. From my perspective as an education, as Secretary of Education. One of the problems here is that uh, the process of becoming an American has become so weak. That is, I might feel better about immigration here. I'm talking completely, totally about legal immigration if we had a better way of making people citizens. But we don't. We don't take that seriously. We don't even make I, our own born in America citizens citizens. Children true. remain Young people remain. I'll get off my hobby horse a second here and get you on yours, please. But but they remain alien to themselves in this culture because they're not taught it. That is, if you had if you had a better system of explaining to people what it means to be an American uh, and took seriously um, that people who come here should believe in those things, I might feel better about increasing numbers of legal immigrants. Fair enough. That, that's all true, although I would still add several caveats. Okay. Um, yes, we are terrible about assimilation. That's be also become a dirty word that the left attacks correct, as correct. racist and evil and so on. We have become terrible about that. I still say I go back to a, a, one fundamental question, which is, do we need more people in absolute terms at all? And yeah. my answer is that 330 million or whatever the final number is, we don't. I right. don't see the I don't see the necessity. Okay, for okay, it. okay. But that way, let me stop you there. But but I'm talking about a principle. If you had a fewer people, let's say the birth rate drops way way down and you drop to 270 and then you got to start deciding what to do if you decided what to do and you decided well okay let's aim for 300 million again you'd want to have a much better assimilation system correct you would but let's say if you were at 270 and you wanted to aim for 300 again why wouldn't you first my first instinct if i were in politics if i were an elected official would be to say well what let's look at what we can do to raise the birth rate of people already here what policies are we enacting right now that make it harder for people to get married early and have kids what are we doing to those people how are we making it more difficult for them to buy a house to be in a school district that works for their kids are we making it more difficult for husbands in particular to find work on which they can support a young family and we have all kinds of policies in place right now that make it very difficult to form families in big parts of the country in fact the number one correlation the number one correlation as i understand it between whether a place an area county city votes Republican or whether it votes Democrat is how affordable it is to get married at a young age and have a family at a young age. And the bluest places are the most expensive and the reddest places, that is the cheapest. No, we're doing a case study in California here with our colleague, Joel Farkas, and we've been running this for about eight weeks now, and it comes to that same point. But uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. I'd be curious what your ideas would be. We've gone a little bit away from our main topic. That's okay. because these are great topics. Uh, what would be the government policies? One that comes to my mind, but excuse me, that's back to the education secretary and every anthropologist loves his own tribe. Tuition and higher education. People don't get married because they owe so much money uh, yeah. for, for educations, which maybe are not really worth the paper they're printed on. Well, these are huge issues. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I admit freely, more. I'm unequal to solving them all. But give me some more. I, I'd like, you know, the, the, a Trumpist policy that, if it were successful uh, in trade and manufacturing, that brought back trade and manufacturing jobs, um, or you know, led to some kind of revival. That certainly would help a lot. 
we'll, we'll see. He's, I think he's, you know, despite the criticism, uh, I'm actually encouraged by a lot of what he's done on trade. Uh, it's been way too soon to see if it'll bear any fruit yet. We have to wait a little bit longer. Probably maybe we have to wait a lot longer. But to me, he seems to be on the right track. At the very least, he's finally done something different than what we've been doing for 30 or 40 years, well, which we know where that led yeah. in terms of uh, working class wages and family formation in certain parts of the country. Uh, I agree with you on t- tuition. Um, I think, you know, public education is a big part of it. Uh, and immigration has a huge impact on public education. Sure there are whole parts of the country where the, you know, the schools for all intents and purposes are overwhelmed with immigrant children with language issues and other issues. And all the resources are, are a big part of them have to go to that. And, uh, you know, the, the parents of kids born here who grow up speaking English look at it and they think about sending their own kid to that type of school. And they say, look, I, it doesn't it doesn't make sense for me. So now I've got to move to another district that's farther away. Maybe it's more expensive, increases the commute time or it takes me out of certain job markets. All of that has an impact. And you know, all of, and, and all of this stuff is related. And I don't think people see the relationship. And by the way, I, I want to commend to your um listeners, if they haven't watched it, they should, because he goes into this at some length. Tucker Carlson on last Wednesday night gave a fairly epic opening monologue on his show. He usually gives an opening monologue and it's usually a few minutes. This was like 15 or 20 minutes. He talked about all of this stuff and people are still talking about it and writing about it and analyzing it and criticizing it to this day. But just watch it. Watch it for yourself. You know, he he makes many of these points and he shows how they're all connected. And I, I was stunned when I watched it because of, both because of the quality of what he said, but also it just hit so many themes that I've been thinking about for a long time and tied them together in a brilliant way. I think, uh, yeah, I saw part of that. By the way, I think just to pick up on, on something we've been doing on this podcast, uh, we've been asking the question, and I think it, it's part of the answer or one of the places to look in regard to the issue you just raised about how do you improve people's li- life life prospects. Uh, we framed it this way. Why are so many people leaving California and going to Texas or Tulsa? Um, and that is because they can live a middle-class life, buy a house, uh, and, and make a decent living uh, and not get squeezed the way they're getting squeezed in California. A lot of this has to do not necessarily uh, I mean, it have to do with federal policy so much as state policy. It's a combination of both. I mean, look, I'm from California. I've thought and written a lot about California yeah. over the years. This is never a topic. And I just returned from California for spending about did, 10 days there. Did you see any middle class uh, people? Uh, yes, I, I, I did. But there's a lot them? of sort of what you, what you might call legacy middle class people. You yeah, know, if you bought yeah. your house yeah, before yeah, yeah, yeah. the explosion in home prices and got the property tax locked in by Prop 13, you're fine. The problem is you can't ever, you can't leave, you can't move. And, and the people buying once you sell are going to be in a completely different economic bracket than you are. One of the things that I've noticed, it's not widespread, but it's becoming more and more common in California, is there's a kind of almost a hereditary class of people who inherit their homes from their parents and the Prop 13 tax easement, and that's the only possible way they can stay within a couple hundred miles of where they grew up and perhaps several generations of their family have grown up. Now, this is not a long-term solution, especially if you have more than one kid. I mean, who who gets the house? You know, we're going to have, are we going to have a primogeniture revival in California over an issue like this? But (laughs) uh, that's something, you know, 
talk about inherited privilege. Now, I'm not criticizing anybody for doing this. This is your property. You should be able to do what you want with it. And I'm actually in favor of uh, as many, um, you know, native and longtime Californians staying in place for as long as possible. So I'm not criticizing it at all. But it is amazing to me that, you know, the left wants to attack hereditary privilege all the time. This is one of their, but, you know, the, in, in their, in their golden utopia of California, a real concrete form of hereditary privilege is emerging now. And they have nothing, not a word to say about it. Does the left believe, I want to come back to your point here about uh, cleansing uh, the, the, the system, uh, the purgative, because they don't believe in America. Does the left believe that the views, beliefs uh, that, that come in on, on these immigrants' backs are in some ways better than American beliefs or values? The, the reason I ask, yeah. I think of an incident back, oh, maybe five years ago when I came to the defense of Commissioner of Education in Arizona who went down to Tucson because they weren't reading, as required by state law, the Federalist Papers. They were reading some uh, documents from uh, Mexican uh, heritage and history. And the school people in Tucson said, well, that's where these kids come from. And the commissioner of the state said, but that's not where they are now. Uh, and they said, well, well, they prefer these documents from Mexico. I'm oversimplifying that uh, to the to the to the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, and the Federalist Papers. Not surprising at all. I mean, that's that that is, in a way, the story of education over my lifetime is the left stripping out, you know, the great books of the Western tradition and replacing it with other stuff. I think you were Secretary of Education in 1988, is that right? Correct. In the, the, the Stanford controversy when they, I was at Berkeley across the bay and Stanford ditched their common core and they replaced it with, you know, a, a book called, among others, uh, I, Rigoberta Menchu, which turned out to Correct. have been a fraud written by somebody other than the purported author. Correct. Peter Thiel has written about this in the Correct. past. Uh, and Jesse Jackson was there protesting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got hey, to go. Hey, 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 <laughs> hold on. I was there. I was in the middle. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I went out and, and gave an address at Stanford and, and yeah. called in defense of Western civilization. And it was standing so that's room. 31 years ago, and all of this has only accelerated in the meantime. But, Michael. I, um, I, I like I, to joke that, you know, I, I thought that the stuff that I was witnessing as an undergraduate was insane, and it would have to sort of yeah, blow itself yeah. out. Couldn't last. And now, in fact, it's the opposite. Um, all the things that I thought were crazy when I was 18 or 19 yeah, or 20 yeah, yeah. are now federal law. No, no, I thought it would end, but it keeps going. No, I, I was there. I gave the address. I wanted to debate the president of Stanford, a guy named Kennedy, but he left town. Yep. Um, but uh, the, my speech was very well reviewed by the, one of the Stanford newspapers, which was edited by the same Peter, Peter Thiel, Thiel probably. you just mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, no. <laughs> hey, hey, ho, ho. Western Civ has got to go. And I was asked about that, and I said, I think it's catchy but not compelling uh, as an argument. Yeah. Anyway, no, things get worse. And I, I, I was just ruining here the other day. The loss of um, of the schools even further to the left. Uh, it is now the stated purpose of many educators in the schools, not to teach math, history, English, reading, not to achieve literacy and numeracy, but uh, equity. The major task of the schools is to achieve quote social justice. That changes something the they can't do. You know, yeah, I don't. I never met him. You probably did because you know, you're better connected than I am by a long shot. But I think it was uh, who was the, who, am, who am I thinking of as a former Berkeley prof and one of the early public interest writers. The name escapes me at the moment, but it'll come it'll come back to me. Um, he said he, he wrote in an essay once describing a similar phenomenon, but from a slightly different angle, which was the decline of public services in New York City. And he said that look, 
what, what the city used to do, you know, police public spaces, run the parks, pick up the garbage, yeah. and so on. Those are things the city can do well. What essentially the city performed a great experiment beginning in the 60s. It stopped trying to do the things that a city can do well and started trying to do the things that a city cannot do well, such as, you know, equalize all peoples, uh, impose social justice, although that term wasn't quite as current back then. Um, and that, that's a great example. You know, when the schools say schools do know how to teach kids how to read and do math and stuff like that. They're pretty good at it. And they can do that to kids at all uh, ability levels so that, you know, the super smart kids end up, you know, in AP classes and so on. And the less smart kids, but still learn the basics. They know schools know how to do that. Those That's something schools are good at. Yeah, they don't know how to impose that's, social that's equity or social justice or anything. So when they try to do it. They, they stop performing a mission that they're capable and competent at doing, and that's valuable, and they start trying to do a mission that they don't know how to do that's, uh, that's beyond their grasp. And really, the, everybody just loses on every level when that, when that happens. I would only disagree and say that they're good at it. They're not anymore. Um, they're not anymore. But they, but they, they, they were once. Right? Yeah, yeah and, they and, were and once. Fact, they were once. Others yeah. have made this point. I make the following point too. I think we know they're actually reasonably good at it with immigrant children, in the sense that if you look at, you can pick any country where immigrants are coming from that has a lower educational attainment than the United States. You can look at the educational attainment of children there, and you can look at children of of cohorts from the same country but born to either direct immigrants or first-generation Americans born to the, the children of immigrants who are then educated in American public schools. And they have better educational outcomes from being educated in an American public school because the American public schools are actually, even today, as rotten as they've become in so many ways, they're still relatively competent at teaching this basic stuff. You know, one of the greatest successes in California was, uh, which is under threat by the left now, of course, but was the elimination of the idiotic bilingual education program, which stuck Hispanic kids learning, which, you know, they're already learning Spanish at home, keeps them learning Spanish and, or speaking Spanish in school, which essentially um, placed them permanently on a lower track in the American in, in the American economy. So it goes up for a referendum, I think it was 1996, anyway, it was in the middle of the 90s, passed pretty overwhelmingly by California voters, and astonishingly was actually implemented by the California educational establishment, and worked extremely well in that the children of Mexican and other Central American Spanish-speaking immigrants overwhelmingly learned English in the decades that followed and had uh, you know, a, a much better participation rates at higher levels in the American economy for, for that reason. So naturally, because it worked and because there was something pro-American about it, the left is aghast and wants to find a way to undo uh, the, the law and reinstitute bilingual education, which will, of course, only hurt the children of Spanish-speaking uh, immigrants, but the left doesn't really care about that. To them, it's all about virtue signaling and, again, as I say, the expiation of America's supposed sins. I had a conversation once with a guy named Domenici, Pete Domenici, senator from New Mexico. Yeah. And he said, supposing we set up a school where, you know, it was strict disciplinary policy, no, no serious horsing around will be tolerated, no drugs, math, English, history, science, um, teach them, get rid of all this other stuff. And we set up a school, we used federal funds to set up what would happen. I said, well, they have set up such a school outside of uh, Denver. And he said, what happened? I said, immediately, tons of parents wanted to transfer their kids there. So since there were too many parents wanting to transfer their kids to that school, they shut down the school, right? <laughs> 
Now, it doesn't work that way with hamburgers, right? Right. I mean, okay, if you're selling hamburgers and more people want to come, you get more franchises. You get more of that hamburger, those hamburger places, but not in uh, not in education. This is very interesting because um started by me asking you if, uh, whether the whole question of borders was a foreign policy question. You said, well, in some ways, yes, but strictly speaking, it's domestic policy. It's really a cultural question in the deepest and most important sense, and it's not primarily about stopping terrorists from coming into the country. The, the reason I say that is all over the news this morning uh, on CNN, MSNBC, people are taking the president to task because only two terrorists have been identified. A couple of the terrorists actually came in from Canada. This is not a, a thing of major numbers. Uh, and that's gonna we're going to hear more and more of that. Well, that that's, 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 on, that's purposeful to frame the debate in a way that's unfavorable to the president and to anybody who wants to see a secure border. So they try to frame it as the only legitimate reason. I mean, look, people have written this, okay? Brett Stevens, someone that I, I find just <laughs> – well, let me – I'll what summarize an op-ed. What happened I, I will summarize an op-ed that he wrote earlier this year. To the charge of, of being accused of being for open borders, he finally raised his hand and said, yes, I'm for open borders or at least more open borders. And then he went on to say uh, in this op-ed – you know, or a column, he's a columnist, he went on to say, basically, if you're not a criminal, and if you're not a terrorist, those are the only reasons that I think are legitimate for keeping you out. If you don't fit in one of those categories, come on in. He was inviting the entire world to move to the United States, accepting only criminals and terrorists. Now, Pew, you know, the, the public polling and research firm, uh, asks this question, among other questions all the time. They go around and they do surveys. And they try to calculate how many people would like to move uh, out of their country to somewhere else. And the answer in one of the surveys I saw was something on the lines of 750 million people in the world said, I would leave and I would go to a higher income country if I could, of which of those 750 million, 150 million said my first choice is the United States. Yep. So that doesn't mean only 150 million want to move to the U.S. It means that, that the U.S. is their first choice. Of the other 600 million, they had some other first choice, but if they couldn't get their first choice, they might want to move to the U.S., but let's just leave it at 150 right there. 150 extra million people would put us at 480, close to half a billion people. Is that not finally too much for anybody? Stevens' I thought completely idiotic argument, among others, was, oh well, the Great Plains are still underpopulated, and so we could use people to go out there. Well, you, you know, the Great Plains have been open to settlement since before the Civil War. <laughs> and they've only started to repopulate a little bit in recent years because of the fossil fuel boom that you know is yeah. bringing people to the Dakotas and elsewhere, another thing that the left want to shut, wants to shut down through anti-fracking and no pipeline building and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, because, you know, for whatever reason, nothing against the Great Plains and the wonderful people who live there, but by and large, lots and lots of people don't want to go there. So when the United States takes in more immigrants, they don't go to the Great Plains. They settle in the, coast, the big coastal cities on the East Coast, the West Coast, to some extent in the Great Lakes and the Gulf Coast. Those places are already extremely crowded. If we took in another 100 or 150 million, they would only get more extremely crowded. So, I mean, that just shows you the level of argumentation on behalf of people uh, arguing for this position. It's just beneath vapid. It's incredibly stupid. And no matter how often or how, how consistently you can point that out, they never stop. They just come back with the same dumb talking points over and over and over again. You're not having a reason discord the right answer. You have to understand that. You're just arguing with somebody who wants a certain outcome and will say whatever 
they think is expedient in the moment to get that outcome. We'll leave it there. Thank you. We didn't get to Erdogan and uh, and uh, and turning down a meeting with John Bolton and other things, but we'll we'll do it another day. We thank you very okay. much. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Well, that was a rapid fire discussion. He was right? ready to go, right? He was ready to go. Yeah, yeah. caffeinated up or just the brain on fire. <laughs> He's a brilliant guy. Uh, we didn't get to actually what I was hoping to get to, Syria and Iran and areas of his expertise, but it was great to hear him on this. And I couldn't agree more, Claude, that the basic uh, argument here is cultural uh, about or should be about uh, immigration, about who, who gets in, who doesn't. And it's also about sovereignty. What does it mean to be a nation? Uh, and it has to mean something. And you can't just walk in, walk out, say you're an American when you walk in, climb over a fence, I'm an American. Uh, and so and I think that larger point is obscured sometimes by all the emphasis on we're doing this to keep terrorists out. Because let's suppose, hypothetically, next week, no terrorists come and it's all women and children. Are they, are they allowed in? No because you're trying to preserve a country and you want to have an open immigration system that's legal. I mean, an immigration system that's legal, but it's got to be have a, have a procedure. Fair enough? No, absolutely. And I thought one thing as well that I found interesting was, you know, you get this, uh, this portion of the left that all they talk about is how horrible the country is, how racist America yeah. is. Yeah. America's the worst place in the world. We should all leave and relocate. But then yet they want everyone else in the world to come to yeah, America, well, yeah, open yeah, the borders. Yeah, but yeah. why would you want that? Why would you want to heap the uh, level of oppression that you feel on others by right. allowing them in the country? Yeah, no, it's the old it Gates test. Sense. You remember the Gates test that I used to talk about? No. Yeah. When I went around the schools, I remember this, uh, you know, woman in San Diego, junior, senior high school, said, you really love this country, don't you? I said, yes, I do. She said, why? Because I don't. And I said, long story, I'm writing a book on it, which became America's Last Best Hope, three volumes. But short answer, uh, every country has its gates. And one way to measure or test a country is when you raise the gates, do people want to get in or get out? Uh, when you raise the gates in East Germany, um, people run to get out, even when you didn't raise the gates. Right. People risk their lives to get out. In America, if you raise the gates, people run in. If you don't raise the gates, people will try to run in. That's at least one test of a country. People right. want to come there. Mm -hmm. So how bad how bad can it be? Now, you were absolutely right, Claude, to take the perspective of what's in the mind of the person coming. And if you see, watch those interviews with people at the border, they are saying, um, I want to improve my life. You know, I want to get a good job. Right. I want to come in and send some money back. Well, and it's, that's an important point, too, because a lot of folks aren't leaving because they hate their country. I mean, you know, they, they're leaving a place that they love I and mean, that's their homeland, but they want to come for opportunity and money. Like in a lot right. of cases, they send money back. I mean, they want it's the opportunity. And the last thing I would say to you, tell me if you think this is right, that you will hear from an interview of someone coming in is, well, I can get better opportunity here, though it is a terrible, horrible, corrupt, racist society. <laughs> I, have, I have never heard an immigrant at the border saying that. No. However, the point of Michael's argument is that that's exactly what a lot of the left, particularly the intellectual left believes it is a corrupt society and so it needs to be cleansed a purgative like a purgative in your in your in your system in your mm -hmm. digestive system flush out all this white male stuff flush out all this thomas jefferson robert e lee stuff and put something better in its place and as bad as the country is i don't see them rushing to get out no they're not rushing to get out either mm -hmm. right the alec baldwin uh, issue here right if, if trump's elected i'll leave um, he didn't leave, did he? No, I don't okay. think so. No, he's just exactly. making more movies. Mm -hmm. um, he makes many, almost as many movies as Samuel Jackson. Oh, Samuel L. Jackson. Is there a movie that's made without Samuel Jackson? <laughs> no, it doesn't seem like it. 
Man. <laughs> and he's always yelling and screaming. He's upset about everything. Yeah, business. and then that's not enough. He's got to be in now in half the commercials that are on right. TV. Right. In the backseat of the car. <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. But it's never been a thought of an immigrant I know to say I'm coming here because I'm part of the purgative. You know, I'm part of the, the, the system that will flush out these American evils and impurities. I don't think so. No, no. There's something about this that attracts them and that's that they right. know it's better than than where they are, you know, and that the opportunities here, it's safer for a lot of these yeah. people here. It's not, yeah. you know, their, their towns and cities and governments aren't ran by drug lords, you yeah. know, it's safer for their kids. It's opportunity. You know, inter, um, interspersing here, his thoughts with uh, our ongoing discussion with Joel Farkas, one thought I hadn't considered before he raised, which is, yeah, you can stay middle class in America, in California, if you're a legacy. That is, you get a middle-class house and you inherit it. Right. But he said, is that primogeniture? Is it go to the oldest son? Or is there a lottery <laughs> among the kids? Who gets the house? Right. Who gets to stay middle-class? Yeah. And who gets a one-way ticket to Tulsa? It can be an Esau-Jacob situation from the from the Bible. That's it. What's that? Tell me well, about that. I so don't know. Esau was the oldest son. He was tricked out of his birthright blessing because he was hungry. Sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Exactly. And so if you're a middle-class so California... You might sell it for a Whataburger or a In-N-Out burger? I mean, I might sell it for a membership at Torrey Pines. You might. My brother could take the house for all I can. You might. <laughs> Every man has his price. Right. And for you, it would be golf club membership. Exactly. I think we'll, we'll leave on that note and move on to something else. Where Claude comes across better. Right. right. Not as a purgative. All right. Very good. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's welcome for the first time to the show Max Eden. Max is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Max, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This this book uh, you have written uh, or co-authored, tell us about the the co-author, by the way. Yeah, the the co-author is a man named Andrew Pollack, who lost his daughter Meadow during the Parkland shooting. And about a week after... The same days at CNN Town Hall, where uh, Mark Rubio was rather ambushed and guns were solely to blame, he was at the White House, said, we need to focus on school safety, what we can come together on, and we need to figure out everything that went wrong so we can learn from it. Uh, and that wasn't really an approach that, that resonated with a lot of the media who wanted to blame the weapon and then move on, but Andy wanted to figure out everything that went wrong and expose it and use it to inform the American people so they can make their schools safer. Just for the audience, this is uh, you refer to it as the Parkland shooting. A lot of people think of it as the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, but we can refer to it as Parkland. This was February of the last year, correct? Yes. Uh, and and you've already uh, started what, where I wanted to begin the conversation, which is uh, when this uh, horrible massacre occurred, um, uh, the media was mostly exclusively, you tell me, about guns. Um, and this had to do with the fact of uh, guns in so many hands uh, across America, and that was the problem. Is, was that the narrative, the main narrative of the media? Um, I would I would modify that slightly and say the main main narrative of the media was anti the particular type of gun that he used. Right, he used a, an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, and so the key arguments that came out with the media focused on was, well, how could he get his hands on that rifle? And to, to my mind, as I started to look at all this unfold, I thought that was maybe not quite the right question. The right question would be, how could he get his hands on any gun whatsoever, okay. given that students were coming forward to the media within the first days and weeks after the tragedy and saying that this is a kid who had committed multiple felonies in many cases that were brought to the school administrator's attention. And so all the talk about around background checks 
uh, and the particular weapon kind of started to ring hollow to me as I looked at this because, you know, everybody agrees that felons shouldn't be allowed to purchase guns. And the student appears to have been uh, a felon who was simply never arrested. And so I wrote an article in City Journal raising the question as to whether or not the fact that he was never arrested, particularly in school where we had intel about felonies that he committed, could have had anything to do with Brow the Broward County School District's initiative to not arrest students when they committed crimes on campus. Uh, and this was trying to explore the question was what brought me down to, to Parkland a couple of months after the shooting. And how I met Andrew Pollack and kind of how our investigation began. Right. And the issues in this book, which will be out in May. And did you want to, uh, I should have started here, but did you want to refer our listeners to Amazon website on this? Yes, yes. Uh, the book is titled Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. Uh, it's available for pre-order on Amazon. And the title really says it all. I mean, the reason why Andrew and then I wanted to do this was so we could figure out every reason why Meadow died. Uh, it was the most avoidable mass shooting in American history, and we wanted to expose the people and the policies that created the Parkland shooter. Okay. And that's a, a strong claim uh, because generally, kind of general liberal conservative instincts are, you know, conservatives argue about individual responsibility and liberals argue about collective responsibility when it comes to crimes. But here's a case where you have a, a psychopathic mass murderer who murdered Andrew Pollock's daughter. And he, once he learned enough about the history of the killer, especially in the school district, he uh, almost puts as much, if not more, blame on the system around him as he does on the killer himself. Before we get to your your book or the thesis of your book, uh, Max, uh, your book with uh, Mr. Pollock, I want to be clear on one thing. You talked about the town hall immediately afterward, uh, uh, I guess it was on CNN, the ambush of Rubio, and then the students going out and speaking. My memory is that the students, or at least the most vocal of the students, were on the same tack as the most of the media. Am I wrong about guns? Uh, you're, you're not wrong. In fact, if you, if you look back very kind of carefully into the history of it, which I have done, you'll see that these students were actually put forward by the school district and by the school board the day after the shooting to host an event against guns. And so at least what I see in this is a concerted effort to shift the narrative that actually came, you know, not necessarily even out of CNN. Uh, CNN was almost a lagging, a lagging party to it, but very quickly the school district wanted to blame the weapon and the students it put forward were happy to carry that message. And it's a, it's a message that could make a lot of sense if, you know, this had been by all appearances a, a, a normal human okay. being without any clear record. But okay, wherever the very, very clear the, that was not. Wherever the students were in the chain of causation or, or message transmission, the message, at least as I heard it, again, it may be filtered by the media, was pretty clear. We're going around the country. We're going to Washington. We're going to see Mitch McConnell. We're going to change gun laws. And that, I think that's being, you know, somewhat charitable to those students. Um, okay, go ahead. The, what, what was the, the message, the, their message? I mean, the, the message, it was that, but it wasn't, we're going to change gun laws in a constructive way. It was it was quite angry and ended up being just kind of very quickly devolved into whatever kind of left-leaning cause of the week was something that they would articulate. Okay. Okay. I mean, Andy is a you know rather conservative guy. He pushed the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Act in Florida, which had the strongest gun control laws that Florida has ever seen, uh, not because he wanted to, but because he thought that was 
productive to get through the school safety bills that he wanted, but the March for Our Lives students were nowhere to be seen on that. They were nowhere to be seen on the Fix NICS Act in Congress or the Stop School Violence Act. So uh, I think that it was not a constructive policy-oriented attack that they took. It was a, a very kind of public argumentative stance that they took, and I thought that was kind of a shame and a, you know, they could have done a lot more Right. if they had taken a more constructive tack. All right, that's what I want to do now. But again, throughout, as you refer to Andy, I just want to remind myself and the listeners, that's uh, Andy Pollock, the father of Meadow, who died in, the, in a, was a victim of the shooting. Why did Meadow die? If it wasn't primarily the gun, what was it? Give us give us the narrative. What what happened here? I've read most of this manuscript, and folks, it's fascinating. I get a ton of manuscripts. I read very few, but I started reading this one, and just it's very compelling. Why uh, why did Meadow die? What what happened here? I like you don't like to say this guy's name, but it's almost essential uh, to do so in in recounting what happened. Nicholas Cruz. So I think I think we can divide this question into into two kind of two segments or two segments answer one that's focused on on him and what happened with him and how he got to the place where he did that uh, and then there's also you know what actually happened the day of that has all sorts of policy ramifications okay. yeah. that you know your listeners might be interested in let's let's talk about him is, yes so this is a student who from the age of three displayed profoundly troublesome tendencies and in all of elementary school had to be confined to a specialized classroom for emotionally behaviorally disturbed students. He goes to middle school and I've actually recently acquired the documents from middle school which aren't in the manuscript that you read. And he basically on an almost daily basis talks about his obsession with guns, his obsession with death, his obsession with killing, his obsession with violence. Um, but the way that the Broward County School District works with special education students, uh, it takes a long time, no matter how dangerous they are, to get them into specialized school. And then no matter you know, how unbelievable it is, they will try to get them back into a normal school as soon as possible. So after about a year of throwing out as many red flags, as many as much of a telegraph of I can be a mass murderer and part of me wants to be in middle school, he goes to a specialized school where he behaves all right for a couple months. So they decide to send him back into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School where they decide the classes he should be mainstreamed for part-time at first are reading and JROTC. So, you know, if we want to talk about guns, we should also talk about the insanity of a school district that takes a student who has telegraphed his obsession with guns, killing, violence, told his therapist at the specialized school that he dreams of killing and being covered in blood. And then they literally put an air gun in his hand and let him practice marksmanship. Now, uh, Cruz can't really hold it together at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School because he's a, a deeply unstable individual. And so while he's there, he commits, uh, in addition to acting like a generally crazy person and jumping out at students and wearing a camel mask to school and bringing dead animals to school and uh, showing dead, them off and dead animals in the lunchroom. Dead animals, in one of the stories you tell, stayed in my brain, in his lunchbox, Correct. Correct. And he, he gave it to another student. Another student opened it up and, and naturally freaked out, and, and he thought it was very funny. How old is Cruz um, at this point? At this point, he is 16 okay. or 7. That, that was 17 years old. Be, be, actually, if you don't mind, be more specific about 
some of the details, the things he did, which were uh, alarm bells in the night, which should have triggered action of a different sort. Sure. So I'll I'll focus on Stoneman Douglas in particular. Okay. So he gets back there full time January 9th, twenty fifteen. And he's how old? Now? Uh, 15, 16? Yeah. Okay. And or no, sixteen, sixteen. Sorry, January 9th, twenty sixteen. And within two weeks, two or three weeks, he posts on Instagram that he wants to shoot up the school. That should have been reasonably alarming. That came to the attention of the Broward Sheriff's Office, who told the caller that he had a right to make that threat under the First Amendment, which is not correct. That threat was brought to the administrators of the school, who did absolutely nothing with it. Um, Later on in, in April of that year, he threatened directly to kill one of his peers, Dana Craig, who took that death threat and gave it to the school administrators, uh, about which they also took no action formally. The only action for which he was ever disciplined in his first semester there was drawing swastikas in the lunchroom table. And the reason why he was disciplined for that action and not any other uh, was that the assistant principals who were usually over him were absent that day, which suggests that there's a great deal of, you know, criminal behavior, certainly disturbing behavior, that I haven't been able to pin down simply because mm-hmm. while these assistant principals were over him, they refused to record any of it, okay. which, as we can discuss later, had some, you know, clear policy roots. Uh, the next semester, the fall semester of what would have been his junior year in September, he uh, again threatens to kill another student. Uh, commits what can reasonably be classified as a hate crime assault on a student yelling uh, the n-word at him attacking him throwing an object at him five students go to the assistant principal and say not only did this did he attack him he's also threatened to kill us he's also threatened to rape our friends he's also threatened to kill our families he brings knives to school he brings bullets to school and we're worried that he will uh threat that he might kill somebody the next time, so you should check his backpack because maybe he has weapons. Okay, let me pause. And they do check his backpack, and they find bullets, which is technically a felony to have on school campus, and their disciplinary response is to tell him to not bring a backpack to school, and this is okay. uh, yeah. a few days before he turns 18, at which point he is, by every legal right, entitled to buy a firearm. What should have been the response? And when, yeah, I mean, so, and when should it have been made? I, I, I told you before this uh, before this podcast that I found very compelling those two or three pages where you say what if, and you cite some 43 yeah. things that should have happened that didn't happen, and if they had happened, this could have been uh, avoided. Yes. So there are, I'd say there are three three kind of those those 42 fall into to four categories, I would say, three of which have to do with what should have been done with him. And what I didn't mention to your listeners is he was uh, evaluated for being Baker acted, which is to say forcibly institutionalized, on three occasions the week that he turned 18, and on as many as four or five occasions prior to that. And he was never Baker acted to put under evaluation uh, and institutionalized if he had been and they had taken a hard look at him, they could have adjudicated him as mentally defective. Let's pause right there. What is the Baker Act? What does it say? Uh, the Baker Act 
says that if a, a person presents a, a, a danger to himself or others, either the mental health authorities or the police have the power to forcibly institutionalize him for a period of evaluation, uh, after which point they can make either medical recommendations or a recommendation to a judge to say that this is an individual who is not fit to own a firearm. Last time I looked at this area of law, it was a long time ago, so I may be wrong, but I, I remember discovering that it was getting harder and harder to quote Baker Act, this having to do with the the ethos of the times, the deinstitutionalization of mental patients and so on. And that the Oh, it's, it's extremely hard. It's extremely um, hard. I mean... Okay, go ahead. They... It, it, it's not actually a legal thing, but it's clear from some of the paperwork that the Henderson Clinic people, the mental health authorities, knew he was lying to them when he denied a plan to hurt himself or others, but took the position that if he doesn't verbally signal a plan to hurt himself or others, we are not able to act. Uh, there are very few beds that they could put him in if they wanted to observe him. And even if they were to have Baker acted him on one of these occasions, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Committee calculated that only 1% of individuals who are Baker acted end up getting adjudicated as mentally defective. Uh, so again, to go back to the gun question, uh, I think that most Americans can also agree that dangerous psychopaths shouldn't be allowed to acquire firearms. But we systematically refuse to designate anybody as such, which means that dangerous psychopaths have and will continue to get their hands on guns like this one did. And if he if he had been Baker acted, to use his phrase, he would not have been able to get a gun? No. If he had been Baker acted, he would have gone under a period of observation, um, at which point the recommendation could have been made that he shouldn't be able to. And the Baker Act to final recommendation percentage is is 1% of people who are Baker acted end up with that designation. Well, if that's the case, and I guess so I guess I am remembering correctly if if I'm understating it though, is 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 it whose fault is this? If it's very hard to get somebody involuntary involuntarily committed, are you faulting the school or others for not trying or for not being able to pull off a 1% possibility. Um, in this case, I, I would I would say there's plenty of fault to go around. Um, the mental health authorities can beg, and not unjustly, that they have extremely limited funding, and that's where their aversion to taking this kind of action comes from. The school, through Deputy Peterson, had the authority to do so and, and stated that they thought they should and didn't anyway. But even if they had, that that 1% likelihood is not a reflection of them. It's a reflection of what, what you had you know, said earlier in the conversation, this civil libertarian ethos that has kind of decimated our mental health system and made it so, you know, almost anything is not, you know, is not grounds for the state to come in and try to put its foot down and say this individual is, is a danger. Uh, and that is... You know, the responsibility for that goes decades back and far beyond the school. But let me let me ask you to just digress a little bit. Um, is it your sense, having researched this case and obviously hearing about other cases, that there are or may be a lot of Nicholas Cruises running around out there who deserve to be Baker acted and are not being? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, 
Cruz was was a he was a next level psychopath. I think that you know I don't want to say that there are tens of thousands of individuals like him out there, but there are certainly thousands. Um, he's not fundamentally unique. What was fundamentally unique, and I, I say this in the book, is that just every institution around him, which you know we build as a civilization to contain our demons and try to maintain the fabric of society, failed. And the reason that that he did this wasn't that you know was a combination of him being a particularly uh, bad case psychopath and the system around him being even sicker than he was okay it wasn't as if um, we did everything right or most things right or enough things right and still fell through the system didn't no literally everything that they could have done wrong went wrong and and the the remarkable thing to me and why i decided it had, it had to be a book and 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 the american people had to you know learn from it is that every wrong decision is perfectly explainable by policies that are rooted in notions of social justice and political correctness. Okay, I want to, I want to get to that so, in a minute. Uh, yeah. When we get to the broader picture, um, and, and I know I'm, I'm digressing here and getting you off track and then telling you to get back on track. That's, that's, what, we do. <laughs> that's what we do in a podcast, but we have time and room in a podcast, too, to, get, to do it all. Max, uh, listening here and thinking of myself as a parent, and I know a lot of people who are listening are parents, can we go back you said at age three, what about parents? Uh, do we have any idea why this kid was so messed up? Problems in utero, problems with parenting, unstable home, no father. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, uh, all of the above in a in a peculiar kind of set of unfolding circumstances. His, his birth mother was a career criminal. Uh, and crack addict, and was busted for crack cocaine possession while he was in utero. So it's you know a reasonable inference that he was exposed to crack in utero. Yes, sir. Uh, he was then kind of adopted by an elderly couple. And when I say kind of adopted, it wasn't a formal adoption process because Linda and Jacob Cruz were elderly and unmarried at the time, and so they couldn't adopt easily through the formal means. So they paid uh, the lawyer of the birth mother about $50,000 to acquire the rights of him. When he was five years old, Jacob died right in front of him, leaving only Linda, who at this point was beginning to age, to take care of both Nicholas and his younger brother, Zachary, who was born. How old was he when they adopted him? Uh, he was an infant. He was a few weeks old. Okay, okay. So his Linda father died. Jacob. His adoptive father died when he was five. Yes. Okay. Um, and so the Linda also adopted his younger brother Zachary, who was born while his birth mother okay. uh, was in jail. Zachary was more of a conventional bad boy. Nicholas was just deeply disturbed, and the the case of Linda Cruz has been something that even even now I, I still can't quite pinned down with confidence. She died two months before the shooting, which certainly was a trigger that, that contributed to it. Yeah. But she seems to be at once, you know, both deeply naive uh, and deeply overwhelmed yeah. and uh, enabled him to everything. I mean, she, even at the point later on in life when he was holding a gun, literally holding a gun to her head uh, in the home, 
she still took him to the store to let him buy more guns. Crazy, yeah. Um, All right. That's where it All went right. to ultimately with her. All right. So uh, uh, almost everything that can go wrong goes wrong here, from in utero to mm-hmm. later on to, to going to, to school, to the family environment, to the, the, the brother, et cetera. So there's a lot of discussion in that in those 43 what ifs and in other parts of the of the of your your telling about these different settings moving back and forth between Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and some other place. What was the other place and how did he get there and what relevance does that have? Yeah, and to me that's that's the strongest counterfactual that that stops this. I kind of got sidetracked on the mental health thing, but um, you know, students like him don't belong in normal traditional schools. Um, there are specialized schools for students with that level of emotional and behavioral disturbance. And in Broward County, one of the specialized schools is called Cross Creek. And in these schools, the, the teacher-student ratio is about uh, you know one student for every three teachers and support staff, extremely small class sizes, behavioral technicians, therapists, uh, a dedicated school psychiatrist, and all of these students are given intensive attention and care. And Cruz showed some behavioral progress during his second semester at the school. But the way that special education increasingly goes in America is uh, policymakers from afar look at that as a, as a bad thing, as you know, not providing students with an education in the least restrictive environment and assume that the best thing for these students is to have them be in normal schools so we're not allegedly discriminating against them. So it was extremely difficult to get him into a school where everybody knew that he needed to go. And then as soon as he showed any sign of behavioral improvement, they immediately railroaded him back into a traditional high school. Counterfactual where this doesn't happen is if he continues to get the the care and attention that he needed and which was being provided to him at a specialized school, but which policymakers have effectively kind of decimated in recent years. That was called Cross Creek, is that correct? Correct. Okay. Did he, uh, your assessment, Dr. Eden, I know you're not a professional, but based on what you know, did he belong in Cross Creek or did did he belong in a mental institution? Um, I think that he, well... (laughs) Ideally, he would have gone from Cross Creek to a mental institution. That wasn't even an option on the radar for them at the time. Okay. If people um, were doing I mean, what they should have been doing, he should have ended up in a mental institution early on. Yes. I mean, when okay. they and, – and or that should have been a very easy way to get him, you know, past the Baker Act progress in front of a judge to adjudicate him as mentally defective because the number of times that he had evinced an interest in killing – and his ceaseless obsession with guns and violence that is documented every step of the way. Um, You know, a responsible individual should have known at the very least this is somebody who shouldn't be allowed to buy a gun, and given his behavior is not somebody who should be out and about in society at large in general. But unfortunately, we were light years away from that being an option in the policy climate. I want to gradually move to the larger picture here, Broward, and Broward as a kind of... (laughs) believe it or not, model uh, uh, for the country um, um, in in, in its handling of situations um, like this, at least before. (laughs) It was regarded as such before the uh, the killing. 
But but I want to talk for just for a minute about because I was reading it, I was reminded of something called the dance of the lemons. Do you know that expression? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's about t- people who run large urban school districts and they have bad teachers, and what they do is they don't fire them; they just transfer them. Uh, this may have been going on with uh, cardinals and bishops too, with uh, priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, trouble here in one parish, so move them to another parish rather than dealing with it. Your account chronicles a lot of people just passing it off. I, I ain't going to do it. Uh, nope, it's First Amendment rights. Nope, I'll bury the paper. I'll pass it along to somebody else. Give us some sense of that. How many people passed on their responsibility here to do the right thing? I mean, I would say with one exception, every single person that he came across in the Broward County School District. Who was that exception? Uh, that exception was a, was a special ed specialist at Stoneman Douglas who attempted to tell the assistant principal that the student is dangerous and we shouldn't allow him into the school. And that was simply disregarded. And it wasn't uh, this individual's authority to make the decision at the end of the day. All that she could do was bring her views to the attention of the decision maker. And that view was overruled. What happened to that special ed teacher? Did she get a com- uh, she, commendation after the fact? Oh no, she uh, her, her her whole relationship with the administration soured for questioning their judgment, and of course, she of course. Uh, left the Broward County School District and oh, left the state altogether. I mean, for God's sakes, this is, and this is what happens. All right, now let's broaden the discussion. Tell us why, unfortunately, this was not a surd, as we say in philosophy, not an not a, something out of the ordinary at Broward, but this is what was going on in Broward, and the accolades Broward was getting for this kind of thing. Talk about the, um, what do you call it, not the transmission belt, but the, the school-to-prison pipeline, yeah. Yeah, and so this is this is a segment that, you know, this is what it originally uh, made me interested in the case before I realized all the other implications, which is, you know, my focus as a, as a policy person had been on uh, what's called discipline reform or the effort to fight the so-called school-to-prison pipeline, which was, you know, this progressive idea that, if we can lower suspensions, expulsions, and in-school arrests, and if we replace quote-unquote exclusionary discipline with quote-unquote restorative justice, uh, that will end up fixing all of society's problems in mass incarceration. And so uh, Broward County was the, the nation's leader, one of the first movers in the effort to fight the school-to-prison pipeline by doing those things, by making it harder for uh, teachers and principals to suspend students, harder for them to expel students, and harder for them to get arrested. And as I said, my original policy question, looking at this on the outside, was, oh, well, he seems to have committed crimes in a school district that became uh, nationally famous and was invited to the White House for its 70% reduction in arrests. I wonder if, if that played a role in it. I later, you know, realized to kind of close a short loop in discussion that a, a stronger case than the arrest counterfactual, which is a strong counterfactual, is if his behavior had been documented in Stoneman Douglas, if he had been suspended for all the sorts of things that he was doing, that could have allowed them to make a case that he should have gone back to Cross Creek. And so, you know, punishment yeah. isn't punishment. It's also a way to track student behavior and to try to improve it, but it's something that we lose if we push to reduce it. And so the connection between Broward County and, and, and America, American school discipline is is nothing short of kind of scandalous to my mind, right? The Broward County School District pushed forward with these policies under Superintendent Robert Runcie 
uh, in the 2012-13 and 2013-14 school year. Robert Runcie came to Broward from Chicago, where he was a deputy to uh, Arne Duncan, who then became Obama's Secretary of Education. Sure. And so Robert Runcie implements this suite of reforms for which he gets uh, tremendous accolades from today's education reform and activist community. And then Secretary of Education Arne Duncan uh, issues a Dear Colleague letter to all school districts, basically threatening them with federal investigations that could result in the loss of federal funding in order to force them to adopt Broward's policies. Wow. To force uh, them to adopt Broward's policies, which very same policies led to this. Correct. So, so I, I just connect two dots here. The poli- We were talking about that special ed teacher as being one, you know, one of a kind. Everyone else kind of passed. But did they pass under the respectability of the Broward County guidelines? Were they doing what the guidelines said, as mistaken as they might have been? Uh, they were acting under the spirit okay. of the rules, okay. Okay. although not the letter. Leniency looked the leniency looked the other way. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're told that you will be judged favorably or negatively by uh, how low you can get all of these statistics, I guess then yeah. you know it's a it's a wink and a nod kind of thing. Yeah. You're, you're, yep, the, simple, similarly with you know urban policing, if, if you're told that the mayor wants felonies to go down, felonies are going to go down. Yeah, and the mayor you know, would be shocked, shocked if he knew, <laughs> allegedly. But of course, everybody knows the way that the easiest way to, to get these stats down is to simply not collect the data and not do what you're supposed to do. Let me ask you, I, I want to continue this discussion with you, uh, Max. It's very interesting, and I know we're going to hear a lot ton from our, our listeners when when the book comes out, if not before. But the two other individuals here, a lot of attention was focused on two uh, uh, people in uniform. One, I think the guy's name is Scott Peterson, the officer in Correct. school. And second was the sheriff of Broward County. Is it sheriff? I can't think of his name right now. Yep. What's his yep. name? Sheriff Scott Israel. Scott Israel. Uh misplaced emphasis i mean obviously they're the end of the line and maybe they never were in the receiving end um i I don't want to absolve anybody but tell us where where they fit in this narrative of yours um you know it is it is such a large narrative that it's i i I could not argue that they don't fit near the center of it as well um didn't go into the school even though he had reason to think there was a lot oh he knew uh, yeah i mean scott peterson knew exactly what was going on um, he knew that in general or that crazy. day, that day okay. and in general. Okay. Um, I mean, one, one teacher came forward to us and said that at one point, you know, Peterson told her that he couldn't arrest Cruz because of these programs and his hands were tied, but more approximately, he knew that there was an active shooter inside of building 12 and his response was to run to take cover behind another building from which position he did not move for 48 minutes, even after he saw two squads go in to address what he knew to be an active shooter situation. And when eventually he moved, it was to retreat further. Okay. But so, his, and his job was to go in, right? His job was to Well, <laughs> and here's where you get to, you know, the beginnings of Sheriff Scott Israel's culpability, right? Because Scott Israel, as soon as he was elected sheriff, changed the Broward Sheriff's Office active shooter policy from the deputy shall go in to the Uh deputy may go in, Uh 
which is entirely out of keeping with common practice. And so, you know, but of, a, pe- but of a piece with the ethos you've described earlier in the schools. Correct. And also of, of a piece with the ethos of the Broward Sheriff's Office in okay. general. I mean, okay. Scott Israel took the, you know, took the philosophy of the school and brought to the streets. He literally said, uh, direct quote or extremely close paraphrase, we judge our success not by how many kids we put in jail, but by how many kids we keep out of jail. Yeah, sure. And there were 45 BSO calls to Nicholas Cruz's home. What's BSO? None of which uh, the Broward Sheriff's Office. Oh, B- okay, BSO. Um, the Broward Sheriff's Office was called to Cruz's house 45 times, none of which resulted in an arrest. And so, I see. you know, as I as I quip in the book, um, up until February 14th, 2018, by Scott Israel's philosophy and his and his definition of success, Nicholas Cruz was maybe one of BSO's greatest successes because they had managed to keep him out of jail despite 45 contacts. Last question. Um, Last question, at least for this round. And again, like I said, we want you back on the eve of the book. But how widespread? Uh, you talked about Broward getting recognized by the department and Secretary of Education recognizing him. How widespread is uh, this uh, ethos uh, in American schools? Um I don't believe it would be an exaggeration to say probably the majority of schools are now operating under this ethos. Um, about 10 million students in about 400 school districts were directly coerced to adopt these policies by federal investigation. Um, all school districts across America were aware of the threat of this investigation, and many of which responded accordingly. But furthermore, this is this is now the politically correct thing to do for for educators and for the kind of education blob, because the idea is that you want to fight the school diversion pipeline, you want to fight yeah. implicit bias, and you want to be restorative and not punitive. And so the shift from you know having there be consequences for actions has has become extremely widespread. You know, there was one anecdote in the New York Times uh, of a teacher in Minnesota where it went something like, you know, the, the discipline method he had used for 30 years, a warning, then a consequence was no longer, this teacher was no longer uh, accepted as valid. He retired in disgrace, labeled a racist. Uh, and so yeah. over the past four years, there has been this in addition to the policy shift directly and indirectly coerced, there's also been a sea change in attitude in the schools that can be traced back to Broward County, wherein, you know, rules and consequences are plausibly racist yeah. and certainly to be avoided. There's a kind of semantic sleight of hand, too, which is, you know, do you want your kids in prison or do you want them leading lives of productive citizens? We want them leading lives of productive citizens. Well, therefore, don't send them to prison. It doesn't follow that nobody should go to prison or nobody should go to a special school. That doesn't follow at all. Correct. Thank you very much, Max, uh, to be continued. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Again, mention the, mention the, the website and where people can get early to get the book. Yeah, the, the book is available for pre-order on Amazon, and the title is Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. I, one last thing just occurred to me. Would Would it be better... I just asked you about nationwide, and you cited some big numbers. Would it generally be better at private schools, Catholic schools, home schools? Yes. Charter schools? Yes, it would be for oh, for oh. two reasons. I mean, all, all of the above, um, because the decisions that were made around Nicholas Cruz are not decisions that, that human beings would normally make yeah. 
if not for fear you. of what's behind them. Got it. And so yeah. in charter schools and private schools, they're actually working communities. They're actually places where the decisions are made with the good of the child in mind and not the bureaucratic imperatives in mind. So uh, absolutely it would be. Well done. Really fine piece of work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. Claude, you can follow me, you and everyone else. Right. On Twitter. I do follow you on Twitter. On Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends, and we'll catch up next week. Claude, you want to say goodbye to the folks? Bye, folks. Bye, folks. Thank you.